Good morning. Yeah. It's great to be with you today. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, you know, I've been, I was thinking earlier today, I've been a part of this church for 20 years. My family came to this church when I was a kid, basically, and uh, a very, very small child, because I'm so young. Uh, Can't you tell? Um, And uh, of all the times that I've been here, this week that we just walked through may have been one of my very favorite times that I've ever experienced in, in all of my time here at this church. To gather for these times of prayer has just been incredibly encouraging to me because I've been and so encouraged to hear your prayers, to hear you praying for, for one another, to hear you praying for your, your leaders uh, at this church, to be praying for our mission and our vision, to be praying for your lost family members and neighbors and coworkers. It has just been an incredible privilege. I just want to say, I know I speak for all the guys on the team when I say, we love being your pastors. This is a great church because of you. So thank you for uh, those of you who came out and participated in that. And being uh, a part of all these prayer gatherings has got me really fired up to, uh, to bring our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer uh, to a close. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to consider the last verse of this text, verse 13. And if you're able and willing, as we've done every week, we're going to stand together and read this prayer as a body. Jesus is speaking and he says, pray then like this. Let's read together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inspired word. Surely the grass withers and the flower fades, but not the word of God. The word of God endures forever. And may he write its eternal truth upon our hearts as we consider it together. Amen. Please take your seats. In the spring of 2014, Eric and Charlotte Kaufman loaded up their two young daughters and every earthly possession that they still had onto a 36-foot sailboat and set sail from Mexico intending to cross the Pacific Ocean and go on an on a, uh, Asian adventure, which, uh, in case you're looking for some spring break plans, um, that could be for you. It's not for you, and I'll tell you why. Uh, things went pretty well for the first 1,200 miles or so. Eric Kaufman was a well-trained and certified uh, sailor. But uh, after about 1,200 miles, uh, they hit something called the intertropical convergence zone, which sounds like something a shady mechanic would tell you is broken in your car. Uh, but I'm, ass- I'm, I'm assured it's a real thing. And when they hit this spot, things started to go really wrong. They were caught in some nasty weather, and uh, the waves got really high, and the winds were really severe. Uh, and uh, the waves caused, uh, caused the ship to be broached, which is sailing parlance for when uh, the ship gets knocked over on its side. Now, getting broached for a ship in and of itself is not necessarily a disaster. But in this particular instance, the boom sail of their sailboat went down into the water. And when the boat right-sized, the pressure was so great uh, that the hull of the ship was breached. And if you, know, you don't have to know a lot about sailing to know that's very bad news indeed. It means you're taking on water. And they had a pump. They were prepared for this. Uh, but this wasn't actually the worst of their problems. 
coming out of that storm, their youngest daughter began to uh, become very ill with what appeared to be an infection of some kind. They gave her some antibiotics, but she wasn't improving. In fact, she was getting worse. Soon after that, their satellite phone stopped working, so they weren't able to communicate with the physician who was helping them. And so stuck, uh, taking on water with their daughter sick, unable to contact people on the sat phone, they went to their long-range radio and sent out a distress signal and got back nothing. There wasn't anyone within range to hear of their distress. And so at this point, they're weeks away from land in either direction. Their daughter is getting worse. They're in a bad spot, and they basically decide, we really only have one option left, and that's something called an EPIRB, which stands for Emergency Position Indicating Radio Beacon. And what the EPIRB is for, it's for when all else fails. And what you do is you break a seal, you push a button, and this device, it translates your coordinates to uh, authorities and tells them that you're in distress and you need someone to come and rescue you. And so you would think in this moment, that's, that's a no-brainer decision, right? We're going to hit the EPIRB, we're going we're to get rescued, but it's not as simple as all that, is it? Charlotte Kaufman said, as they were thinking about this, she said, you know that if you hit the EPIRB, help is going to come, but when you hit it, you also know that that means your home is gone. They're going to come and they're going to rescue you, but your boat's not coming with. There's not room for that. All your stuff, all the memories, all of your dreams, all of that's going to sink to the bottom of the ocean. You're going to have to say goodbye to that if you want to be rescued. But they were desperate. They had no hope of saving themselves. And so the EPIRB went up, and later on that day, help arrived, and they were rescued. They were saved, but they had to sink their boat before they left. It was a costly rescue. You know, the gospel of, of Jesus is, is good news. It's good news that there is rescue for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But that rescue, it comes with a cost too. You gain everything when you come to Jesus. You get life and hope and, and peace with God and a, a reconciled relationship to Him. But you're going to have to give something up in order to get that. You're going to have to renounce your ability to live life on your own. You're going to have to, uh, as it were, you're going to have to sink the boat of self-sufficiency in order to come to Jesus because Jesus will have you. Guys, listen, he will come with all of your issues, all of your problems, all of your stuff. He will have you. But you only come into his kingdom on his terms. You must come trusting fully and only in his righteousness and not your own. We have to say with uh, the hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is, is teaching us about prayer, but he's also doing something else, isn't he? As we're praying, God, God we need your kingdom to come. We need your will to be done here on earth just like it is above. When we're, when we're praying, God, we need you to give us the food that we need to survive. When we say, God, we need you to forgive us. Our sin problem is too great. We need the forgiveness that you give. When we say, don't lead us into temptation. When we say, deliver us from evil. What we're saying is, God, we must face how needy and how vulnerable and dependent we are. That's what prayer is about. It's humbling yourself and realizing your desperate need for God. That's what prayer is for. 
But you know what? That's also why prayer is difficult. Does anybody struggle with prayer? Is prayer hard for anybody besides me? You know, there's, uh, in my experience, there's, there's two kinds of people who find prayer easy. The first is kids, okay? I was talking to my kids during family worship this week, and I was saying, kids, why do you think prayer is hard? And they looked at me like I was crazy. And one of my kids, uh, I won't tell you which one, it was one of my daughters. There's three of them, though, so you won't know which one it is. Between, a fork, between forkfuls of mac and cheese, she goes, Daddy, prayer is easy for me. <laughs> I know, Pharisee, right? I rebuked her, don't worry. Um, <laughs> but, but that's true in a sense, right? Because kids, kids, they just have this boldness in prayer, don't they? They haven't learned yet the, the disciplines of self-sufficiency. They just ask for what they need. They know they're dependent. They know they're, they're needy. I think that's why Jesus said in Matthew 18, the, the, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, what does he do? He pulls a child over and he says, unless you become like a little child, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples are arguing about who's going to sit on the throne. Jesus is saying, you haven't even made it into the king's court. There's a second group of people who, who don't find prayer difficult at all, and it's desperate people. It's people who have the rug pulled out from underneath them. People who experience their dark night of the soul and know they have no hope if God doesn't intervene in their situation. If you've ever prayed with someone who's in that spot, then you know what that's like. You've seen it. The question that the Lord's prayer as a whole, and verse 13 in particular, sets before us is this. Do you know how great your need is for God? Do you live with an awareness of how vulnerable and dependent and desperate and needy you actually are? You know, last Sunday we got a, we got a small window into that, didn't we? When the storms came through. You know that feeling that you had as 70 mile an hour winds are whipping through our city? You're looking out the window and seeing trees bending like this. Decades old trees being ripped out of the ground at their root system. For just a moment, God, God opened up a window on our buffered and safe and secure world to show us there's danger around us. We're not safe, even though we think we are. We think we're self-sufficient. We think we're okay. But guys, we know this. There's not a person in this room whose whole world couldn't completely unravel with a few vibrations of a phone this afternoon, right? Here's the point. Until you know your desperate need for God, you won't pray. And there's two realities in the final petition of the Lord's Prayer that draw us to prayer in verse 13. First, we pray because we're vulnerable to temptation. And second, we pray because we're desperate for deliverance. We pray because we're vulnerable to temptation we pray because we're desperate for deliverance. Let's talk about temptation for just a minute. You know, when uh, before you're a Christian, there is uh, a little king who lives inside of you, and he is leading you constantly away from the things of God. He's leading you toward selfishness. He's leading you toward sin. It's the flesh, your sin nature. And what happens when Jesus saves you is that that king gets deposed. God topples his little kingdom, but he's still around, right? The Puritans liked to say that we're freed from the power of sin when we're saved, but not necessarily from the presence of sin. That awaits a future day. 
And so uh, what happens in temptation is this, this deposed king, this flesh, is going to try to take your mind and fixate it on something and have your affections stirred toward something that's sinful. And what temptation does is it, it performs a, uh, like a magician's sleight of hand trick. In temptation, something sinful gets offered to you as though it's something good and desirable. In temptation, your enemy presents himself to you as though he were your friend. I love the way that James uh, describes this in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Listen to how he talks about temptation. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But listen to this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And, when sin, it is, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we see what James is laying out here. He's saying that temptation gets you because it only tells you half stories. It tells you, uh, it tells you uh, or it leads with the first half while obscuring the second. It holds out to you the fleeting pleasure of sin while hiding from you the destruction and slavery and ruin that comes on the other side of that sin. So temptation holds out to you the allure of pornography by, by convincing you that it's harmless, that nobody needs to know about this. No one's going to get hurt. That's the part it tells you, while at the same time it covers up the fact that, that, that viewing pornography distorts your view of sexual flourishing. It literally remaps your brain pathways. It funds and it furthers the, the terrible and, and awful and evil sex trafficking industry. And it selfishly and idolatrously uses and objectifies men and women who are made in the image of God. Temptation invites you to, to give yourself over to sinful anger by promising this is going to be the thing that finally drives your point home to that rebellious teenager, right? None of you teenagers who are here, other teenagers. It says this is going to be the thing that finally gets that, that incompetent employee to straighten up. It invites you into that while concealing the fallout, a child who's, whose spirit is crushed, a relationship that's that's now distant from someone that you love or an undermined and ineffective witness at work. Temptation lures you to entertain and, and nurture a spirit of covetousness. Temptation says to me, Josh, your car was made in the year 2000. Your car is now old enough to drive itself. You'll be sending that joker off to college here in a few months. You work hard, man. You've sacrificed. You deserve that guy's car pointing at my wife. She, her car's old too. <laughs> or maybe it's like this, but with that woman's husband, he's, he's so much more tender and solicitous and loving than your husband is. You deserve somebody who will love you like that. All the while, it's concealing the, the discontentment and the disaffection and the idolatry and the bitterness that covetousness brings that eats away at your soul. Temptation screams at you, Act on this urge to give yourself over to adultery. You'll enjoy the forbidden fruit and no one has to know. While concealing the utter devastation, it rains upon every aspect of your life. And what James is saying 
in these verses is one way you deal with temptation is to look down the road. Look ahead. Look past the first half of the story to the other half. Before you go off that diving board and cannonball in, make sure that water is good. Before you take that on-ramp, make sure you know where that interstate is leading you. Somebody who understands this well is, uh, is the pastor and author Randy Alcorn. When he first started to travel uh, and speak and be invited to, to, to preach at different places, Randy Alcorn uh, met with a, a former ministry leader who had been disqualified by his adultery. And he asked this man, what, how could this have been prevented? What, what, you, what could have you done? What could you have done to keep this from happening? And this leader looked at him and said, with a haunting pain and precision, he said, if I'd only really known or really thought through and weighed what it would have cost me and my family, I honestly believe I never would have done it. And Randy Alcorn very wisely, I think, went home and he wrote out a list of all of the things that would or could happen if he were to give in to the temptation to commit adultery while he was traveling. Here's just a sampling of what he wrote down. Grieving my Lord, displeasing the one whose opinion matters most, having to look one day at at Jesus Christ in the face at the judgment seat and give an account for why I did it, following in the footsteps of men I know whose immorality forfeited their ministry and caused me to shudder, suffering of innocent people around me who would get hit by my shrapnel, untold hurt to Nancy, my best friend, loyal wife, the the loss of her respect and her trust, hurt to, and loss of credibility with my beloved daughters, the loss, potentially, of my family, shame to my family, shame to my church family, shame and hurt to my friends, especially those I've led to Christ and discipled, plaguing memories and flashbacks that could taint and haunt future intimacy with my wife, being haunted by my sin as I look in the eyes of others, having everything dredged up again wherever I go and whatever I do, bringing great pleasure to Satan, the enemy of God, heaping judgment and endless problems on the person with whom I would commit adultery, possibly contracting a disease, possibly infecting Nancy, possible pregnancy with its personal and financial implications, including a lifelong reminder of sin to me, and my family. And he printed out this list and he would carry it with him when he would travel. And every time temptation spoke to him and offered him the first half of the story, he would go to his list. And he would say, no. The second half of the story is too devastating. Listen, it's not legalism to look ahead of temptation's half story to see where it could lead, and then, and then to put fences and to put guardrails around your life to protect you from it. In fact, that's, that's wise living. Some of you already do this, I know. Some of you don't engage in, in the consumption of alcohol. It's not that you believe it's a sin. It's that you believe that that could make you vulnerable to temptation. And so you, you say, I'd rather set it aside and exercise my liberty in this way. For some of you, you have high walls about the sort of entertainment that you'll consume, television shows, movies and things like that. There's just places I don't want to go because I know I'm vulnerable to temptation. This is exactly what Paul's talking about in Romans 13, 14, when he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is what a wise and humble Christian does in view of what's at stake. Just as a point of application here, 
Have you looked down the road to see what dangers could possibly be in store for you? Is there any point in your life where you have you've put up fences and guardrails because you know you're vulnerable to temptation? It'd be a worthy exercise for you to consider in prayer this week. God, what does it look like? Where am I, where am I vulnerable? Where do I need to put up some fences in my life out of my desire to please you? So we must put these, we must take the long view. We must be wise about where temptation leads, but that's not enough. That's the point of, of this passage and what Jesus is exhorting us to. We also have to pray that God would keep us from temptation. We have to, to pray that he would deliver us from it, that he would keep us from it. And we have to pray that when we find ourselves in a place where we are tempted, that he would give us the grace to flee it and to run away from it, which is what he's promised to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He says he will provide a way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. We must pray that God will keep us from temptation. And this does introduce a a question that I want to address here. If we're supposed to pray that God wouldn't lead us into temptation, does that mean that God might lead us into temptation? Is that saying that God could be the cause of our temptation? How are we supposed to think about it? We just heard James say that God himself tempts no one, but at the same time we recognize When Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4, just a couple of chapters ago, who was it that led him into the wilderness? Who was it? Anybody know? It was the Spirit, right? So the devil did the tempting, but God the Holy Spirit led Jesus toward temptation. And so we have to ask, does God tempt us? Is it God who dangles the carrot of lust or anger or greed or gossip or or gluttony in front of our faces? There is a tension here. And one of the ways that some people try to resolve it is by, is by taking this word temptation and using uh, the alternate meaning of this Greek word parasmos. It's used 21 times in the New Testament, and many times it's legitimately translated as a testing or a trial. And so that, that could be right, right? That could be right. We don't, we don't want God to test us or to lead us into trials. Nobody prays, God, this ice cream sandwich is so delicious. Thank you for your good gifts. Because you love me so much, could you, just, could you just bless me with some lactose intolerance so that I have a trial here? We don't pray like that, right? I hope you don't pray like that. Enjoy that ice cream sandwich. It's delicious. <laughs> Nobody prays, man, my marriage is just so sweet right now. Lord, could you please just give us a giant argument over finances that leads to an angry storm off? Please, could we have that? It'd be so good for us. We don't pray that way. But trial or test could be right. But I think in context, the word temptation is is the better use here. Because in the context, remember, we've just asked that God would forgive us our debts. Forgive us for our debt of sin. But that's not enough to carry us, right? We don't just need deliverance from our past debts. We need God to preserve us from incurring future debt as well. When we pray this, we're asking We're asking that, Jesus, please don't lead me into temptation. Please don't put me in a place where I'm given over to it, where I would abandon my hope and my trust in the sufficiency of Christ and choose sin, take it into my heart. We pray, God, lead us not into temptation because we believe he can preserve us from being in a place where we fall and our soul gets shaken. And I, listen, I know I'm not completely resolving the tension here between these things, and that's that's intentional, I think the Lord wants us to sort of sit in that tension. 
I think we can be so interested in, in systematizing all of this that we, that we drain it of its, of its mystery, and I think we are to maintain that to a degree. But at the same time, I think the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism really helpfully sums this up for us. This is, you know, this is language from hundreds of years ago, so, so let's put our thinking caps on and listen here. In considering what this, uh, what this prayer is saying, it says, Acknowledging that the most wise, righteous, and gracious God for diverse, holy, and just ends may so order things that we may be assaulted, foiled, and for a time led captive by temptations. That Satan, the world, and the flesh are ready powerfully to draw us aside and ensnare us. So acknowledging all of that, we pray that God would so overrule the world and all in it, subdue the flesh and restrain Satan, order all things, bestow and bless all means of grace, and quicken us to watchfulness in the use of them, that we and all his people may by his providence be kept from being tempted to sin. What this prayer is saying is, is God, Father, please give me a heart orientation that leads me away from the lies of temptation and toward your truth. God, I know I'm vulnerable, so please protect me from the temptation that leads to sin. And when I am tempted, please don't let me give myself over to it. Do you pray that way? Let me encourage you this week. Make that a part of your prayer life. Say that to the Lord. God, lead me away from temptation. Preserve me and protect me. That's our first point. We pray because we're vulnerable to temptation. Second, we pray because we are desperate for deliverance. What do we actually need to be delivered from? In the ESV translation that that we use, that we like, uh, it says, deliver us from evil. Some of your translations, if you're King James or NIV, it says, the evil one. And in the Greek, tuponeru, uh, the masculine noun with the definite article, I think it is actually better, evil one. I think that's the force of what is being communicated here. And if that's correct, if we, if we allow for that, it helps us to see how the second half of this petition really connects to the first half. Deliver us from the evil one, and lead us not into temptation. We see how those things connect. Because who does God use and allow to bring temptation and trials onto his people? Who was it that tempted Eve in the garden? Who was it that God allowed to test Job? Who was it that tempted Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness? Who was it? I'm really asking. It was Satan. That's right. Satan is the tempter of the brothers. 1 Thessalonians 3.5. He is our adversary, 1 Peter 5.8 says. He is the accuser who stands against us. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Throughout the New Testament, there is this testimony to this evil one, this opponent who wants to end us and destroy us. Now, hold on a second, we say. We're modern people, right? We don't, we don't get down with that weirdness, Okay. Satan is just like a campfire story we tell to make our kids walk right, right? When we think of the devil, we, we think about uh, sometimes that, have you ever, you ever driven on I-65 in Alabama? There's that, that sign. Have you seen it? Have you seen this sign? Go to church, the devil will get you. <laughs> like he's got his scythe and like he's a little scary, but he's more cute than terrifying, right? Is that, that's how we think about the devil so often, right? But do you remember the movie The Usual Suspects, what Kevin Spacey's character says? He says, the greatest trick the devil, devil ever pulled was what? Convincing the world he didn't exist. 
Now, that's not a very fresh reference. That movie's over 20 years old, which makes me feel kind of dated too. But that is absolutely spot on. We don't believe we're vulnerable and dependent and needy because we don't think we have an enemy who wants to devour our souls. That's deadly. I read an article a couple years ago in the Orlando Sentinel about, uh, about a warning that was sent out by officials at Yellowstone National Park calling on tourists to observe a safe distance from the bison who live in Rome in the park. And now why do you think they had to issue that warning? Just take a guess in your mind. A woman got attacked and thrown up in the air by a bison when she was, what? Posing for a selfie, that's right. (laughs) I'm going to read straight from the article. This is hilarious. The dangerous encounter was the fifth run-in between park goers and buffalo this year. Park officials say the 43-year-old Mississippi woman turned her back on the animal to get a photo with it. Someone nearby saw the woman and her daughter, there was a kid involved, about six yards from the animal and yelled to warn them they were too close just before it came at them. They tried to run, but the bison caught the woman and tossed her with its head. The the woman's family drove her to a nearby clinic where she was treated for minor injuries. Is it the first time that's happened, you ask? I'm glad you asked. No, it's not. In separate incidents earlier this year, a bison gored a 68-year-old woman and a 16-year-old girl and tossed an off-trail teenager and an Australian tourist into the air. Five bison encounters resulting in injuries is unusual during a tourist season, said a park official. We typically have one or two per year, she said. And the question is, why are you posing for that selfie with that bison? That bison wants to hurt you, man. He saw what you did at Ted's Montana Grill last Tuesday night. He saw it. (laughs) That was his cousin you were munching down on. Now, you know I love a good selfie, hilarious story. But this is illustrating something really important, and it's this. Guys, we think we're safe, but danger is right behind us. We think we're secure, and we're buffered from catastrophe when evil is crouching at our door. There is a real enemy who is actively working to destroy you and your faith. Ephesians 6.12 makes this so clear. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I just have to ask, the text demands that we ask this. Do you believe there's an enemy who wants to destroy you? Do you believe that he has arrayed his forces against your faith? And the most important question, do you think you're strong enough to withstand him on your own? The Apostle Peter did. You know, Peter was in Jesus' inner circle. He had witnessed Jesus perform many miracles. He even did a few himself. He thought he was safe. But what did Jesus say to Peter right before he was arrested? Luke chapter 2, verse 31. Simon, this is red letter. This is Jesus speaking. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That sentence should terrify us. And by the way, that word for you in the Greek, it's humos. That's plural. So where, I'm com- where I come from, that text should be translated, Satan demanded to have y'all. That he might sift you like wheat. Satan's design is to separate you from your faith, to shake you in a way that your faith falls. And thank you, Luke. I love you 
for including verse 32, what Jesus says next. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. How beautiful is it that Jesus prays for us? By the way, do you think Jesus believes the devil is real? You better believe he does. 1 John 3, 8 says, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Notice as well that Jesus doesn't pray that Peter would escape the sifting. Instead, he prays that Peter's faith would survive the sifting. Unfortunately, Peter doesn't get it. Verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. In Matthew's account of this, he says, even if all of these other fools fall away from you, I will never fall away from you. Jesus, it's you and me, man. I don't know about these other guys. These guys are cowards, but I'm with you to the end. What happens? Peter's faith gets, gets leaned on just a little bit by a little servant girl around a fire pit. And all of his bluster, all of his boldness, all of his strength just evaporates. He denies Jesus. He invokes curses upon himself, swearing oaths to deny his friend. This man, he said that he would never forsake. Peter didn't get it. And I wonder whether you and I get it. See, it's the, it's the proud person who says, I'm safe. I'm self-sufficient. I'm okay on my own. So bring on the trials. I'm strong enough in my own strength to withstand anything that might come at me. But it's the humble person who says, God, I know I'm vulnerable. I know that I'm completely dependent. I need you to preserve me. I need you to deliver me. God, I know that if you, if you loosen your grip on me, even for one second, if you let go of me by one inch, I am done. The world, the flesh, and the devil will have their way with me. So keep me. Preserve me. Deliver me. That's why we sing, God, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. So here's my heart. Take it. Seal it. We know we're vulnerable to these things. God, God's word says it so clearly. And that's why, that's why we, we say we've got to prioritize gathering with God's people. We've got to hear the word spoken over us. We've got to come to the Lord's table together. We have to sing together. We have to encourage one another. We have to read the scriptures on our own. And we have to pray. We have to pray that God would preserve us and keep us. And we won't pray until we know our desperate need for God. I think Jesus is doing two things in the Lord's Prayer. I think he's teaching us how to pray, and I think he's reorienting us to reality. I think he wants us to see and feel our vulnerability, our desperation, and our need for God. And in seeing that, turn to the only place where trust and hope and safety and rescue is found, and that's in Him. It's in Him. And I love this. Not only is Jesus teaching us what to pray, He is becoming the answer to our prayer. Jesus goes on from this place. 
He continues to live a life of perfect obedience to his Father, and he goes to the cross where he becomes the sin-bearing sacrifice, where he stands in your place. He looks at your sin, which demands punishment because of God's justice and God's wrath, and he says, I will stand in your place. I will bear the judgment of God. I will face down the evil one for you. He bears the penalty of your sin for all the times that you've given into temptation, for all the times you've left yourself vulnerable to the evil one, for all the times you've betrayed the God who made you for himself, for all the times you've sought rest in some other place than him. Jesus pays for it in full. No one ever cared for you like Jesus does. No one ever loved you like he loves you. If you're not a Christian, you know that there's something deeply broken and wrong with this world. And you know there's something deeply broken and wrong with you too. And Jesus Christ is the answer for that. He's the Savior who loves you. He died so that you could have life if you'll turn from your self-sufficiency and your self-righteousness and place your hope and your trust in Him. And He is at work in this world making all things new. You could put your trust in Him today. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are hearing me this morning, in 2017, could we be done with self-sufficiency? Could we be done with posturing and trying to look like something that we're not? Could we be done with self-trying? Could we face the reality of our desperate need for God and our full dependence upon Him And in seeing it, be amazed at the provision that he's made for us. Every day when I walk to my office, I pass by Shannon Piper's office, and she has right next to her door a quote from Charles Spurgeon that I love. It says, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. Jesus is better than we have imagined He is so good and kind and gracious. And he holds himself out to us as the answer for our sin problem to be received by faith. Even today, at the Lord's table, we come and we're strengthened in his promises to us. We're reminded of his love for us and we're given fresh faith to trust him.